So last week we ended our series that we started for the beginning of the year, and as I mentioned earlier, it is Lent. And we're going to do a kind of a different kind of Lenten series. We're going to talk about some women from the Old Testament. And I wanted to do this not because I'm specifically trying to focus on women necessarily, but because I wanted us to think about this Lenten season a little bit differently and to think about the preparedness that's important to it. So our text this morning is from Genesis chapter 16, and I'm going to read a few verses. It says 16 verse 13, but I'm going to read just a a handful of verses from chapter 16, and I would ask you to stand this morning as I read it. Genesis chapter 16. I'm going to start in verse 9. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. Let us pray. Hide me behind your cross, Lord. Articulate your heart through my voice to your people. Let the transformation of our lives be wrought thoroughly by the Holy Spirit in response to your truth. In this Lenten season and always, let us faithfully remember the sacrifice you made on our behalf to draw us to you. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. On Friday and Saturday of this past week, I had the opportunity to participate in a holiness conference. It was actually a holiness leadership, holiness theology leadership conference. I forget exactly what they named it, but in any case, it was really, really good. I really enjoyed it. I got a lot from it. But one of the things that the speaker said at the very beginning was that he modeled his preaching ministry after Jesus. Sounds like a really good plan. If you read in Luke about Jesus' very first sermon, you will see that perhaps this is a little more hazardous than you might expect. Because Jesus stands up in the synagogue the very first time and starts to preach. He reads from the book of Isaiah, and everybody's like, wow! This guy, he's really, he's pretty good. We like what he's saying. He reads really well. We know him. He's, uh, you know, he's Mary and Joe's boy from down, down over the road. And then Jesus starts saying things to them that makes them really uncomfortable. And very quickly the tide turns, and at the end of that 
description of his first sermon, they have actually chased him to the edge of a cliff where they're about to kill him. Now, I'm going to tell you very, very much that I want to preach like Jesus. However, I would very much like to not wind up at the edge of the river down the road. I will say that if today in particular, but generally speaking, you feel like maybe I stepped on your toes a little bit, I'm sorry that I have done that, but I will tell you that um, I'm going to preach like Jesus did, <laughs> and so uh, sometimes that's going to be the case. Sometimes you're going to walk away from a sermon that I have preached, and it's not going to necessarily make you feel great. Uh, someone else once told me that uh, my job as a pastor is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. So, if you are afflicted today after this message, maybe you were too comfortable. I, I just say all of that because there's a reason why I pray the way I do at the beginning of a message, and that I ask God to speak using my voice, because what I have to say, you know, I write a sermon and I study during the week, but... I really hope that what I'm saying to you is not me, Jennifer, standing up here saying things to you, that it's really something that you're getting directly from God. And I don't mean that to say that I'm some sort of special mouthpiece for God. I'm saying that that's actually what I'm asked to do, is to take what God says and hopefully help you to hear it in such a way that's applicable to you. So today's message may include some moments of the Holy Spirit telling you some things you don't necessarily want to hear. If so, I promise you can disagree. You can even walk out of here really, really mad at me. That's okay. I'm going to keep loving you, and I'm going to keep preaching what God lays on my heart. So all of that aside, we talked a little bit about social media accounts this morning. And I think about social media sometimes as a noisy place. It's a place where you go to sort of draw attention to yourself, right? You don't post pictures and things about things so that people will ignore them. In fact, one of the things that I found myself doing every now and again, and I trust me, I'm preaching some of this to myself, is you post something, and then you go out and you see, well, how many people liked it? Or when you know that you've, you've like, posted something that you think people are really going to, like, you know, get around, you're like, oh, look at that so-and-so who I never talked to. I never have any conversations with. They loved it. Oh, that's really cool. Like, they're, you know, they're really, you know, I, that means I really put something out there that was noticeable. And part of the reason why those posts are put out there, part of the reason why we notice when other people notice is because there's so much noise, right? If you have Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat and Instagram and all of those kinds of things and maybe you have your TV on in the background and you have news coming in and you have all of these things making all kinds of noise, you have so much noise 
around you that sometimes it feels like you have to put really big emphasis on the things that happen in your life so that people will notice you, so that people will see you. People have lots of opinions. Sometimes I think people put out their most crazy opinion on Facebook just so they can draw in people's attention, right? We have people who are, we don't want any guns. We need more guns. We need soldiers at schools. We need, we need all kinds of things. People boycotting NFL because people kneel and other people shouting hateful things at marches and so much noise. And you have to wonder, what on earth is happening? When the noise gets overwhelming, right? Have you ever felt like you just need a break from all of the input and all of the information that's coming in? Black lives matter, all lives matter, blue lives matter, people matter, me too, church too. Get rid of the guns. Give us more guns. Make laws. Do things. Dreamers. Haters. Fake news. Real news. All of it. Constant, constant, constant. I can tell you my opinions about any of those things. Some of you would stand up and cheer. Some of you would be, uh, no. That's okay. I'm not going to tell you my opinions. But noise can be overwhelming. It can create tension. And it makes it really hard for us to see other people and for us to be seen. And into this chaos, an overwhelming noise steps God. In the story of Hagar, all those many, many years ago, we see God step into the story and say, not only do I see you, but you can see me. Well, it might be helpful if we understood exactly what is happening here, right? We kind of jumped into this in the middle, but let me just explain to you a little bit about what is going on exactly in this story. You see, God has made a promise to Abraham. He's actually called Abram at this point because God later changes his name. And Abram is married to Sarai. And Abram and Sarai have been married a really long time. And Abram has lots of things and lots of money. He's a pretty wealthy guy. He's a nomad at this point because God has called him away from the place where he grew up in Ur. And he's asked him to go somewhere else. Not with a GPS, not with any kind of directions. He just said, hey, I'm going to tell you where to go. 
let's just get moving. Now, when Abram goes somewhere, he doesn't just pack all the kids up in the minivan and take off. He actually has what basically amounts to a small city with him. He has tents and people and his wife and animals and equipment and things that all get packed up and they're carried and moved and they go wherever God has asked them to go. They're headed toward Canaan, but that's a ways away. They start out and as they go along, they come to Egypt. And in Egypt, they happen to pick up some people to help them. Hagar is one of them. Hagar becomes Sarai's personal servant. And so God has made this promise. Abram and Sarai have been married for a really long time. In fact, Abram is about 80 years old. And God's promise to him has been that he will have more descendants than the stars in the sky than the grains of sand in the desert. There's only one little problem. Abram and Sarai have no children. Like none. Like you can't have descendants, plural, without a child, right? It's kind of necessary to the process. So God has made this promise to them, and Abram and Sarah are like, um, okay, I don't know, maybe you missed this, God. Um, uh, Sarah is like 80, <laughs> um, and it's really not kind of a thing for 80-year-old women to have kids. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm... Uh, little past mid-40s, and um, I don't want a baby at this point. I, God could come and tell me that I'm going to, and I would be like, okay, Jesus, if that's really what you want. Abraham and Sarah were a little bit different. They really wanted a baby, but they're sitting there going, um... I don't think this is going to work. So, of course, because they know better than God, they make a plan. And I'm sure that when they thought of it, they thought it was a really good one. Actually, Sarai came up with it, just in case you were wondering. And Sarai said, you know what, Abram? You know, I, I'm sure God has this all figured out, but I'm just going to help him out here a little. Uh, take my servant over there. I know her. I trust her. And uh, you guys go, you know, let's, let's get this baby thing kicked off. Well, that goes as you can imagine it would. They wind up, she winds up pregnant. Hagar is pregnant. Hagar is probably 20. She's young. She winds up pregnant. All of a sudden, Sarah is not so keen on the idea of Hagar having this baby. 
And I'm sure it's not just the age difference. It's not just the idea that she has now this woman who has been with her husband, but I think it's jealousy over the whole idea of her being pregnant and the fact that Sarah has not ever been. And so she starts, they sort of start this antagonistic relationship thing happening, right? Sarah is like not so nice to Hagar, and Hagar's kind of not so nice back, but they're kind of in this antagonistic place, and finally it gets to be too much for Hagar. Now, for those of us who have been pregnant before, um, we know that um, there are often hormones involved in being pregnant. And so if you can imagine being in a situation where you have this hormonal thing happening and the person who put you in this situation is not being nice to you and you have virtually no say over anything, at some point you kind of have to figure this is all going to come to a head. And it does. Hagar says, okay, I have no idea where we're at. I don't know how I'm going to get anywhere else, but I'm done with this. I'm leaving. So she does. Packs up her stuff. Walks. She winds up in the wilderness. Now, our gospel reading tells us that Jesus was in the wilderness right after being baptized. And one of the themes that we're going to see as we talk about these women is that they've all spent some time in a wilderness situation. In this particular moment, Hagar's in this wilderness situation and she has no one else with her. She's pregnant, heavily pregnant. Which means she's not in the most comfortable of positions anyway, but she's also in a desert with no water. And she's basically sat down at the side of the road and said, okay, I'm going to die. I got nothing. I got this kid that I didn't want, that I have no say in, that now my mistress hates me over. I have already been committed to a life of servanthood. I've already been living in this crazy nomadic thing where before in Egypt I had a very different life. All these things. And she's just sitting there and she's ready to just die. And God sends her an angel. Actually says the messenger of the Lord. There's some speculation at some point that this was actually Jesus. Or a type of Jesus. That's sometimes the way that scripture talks about it. They talk about people places where messengers of God show up in the Old Testament and they say that that's a type of Jesus. 
But in this case, she's sitting there, and this messenger from God says, hey, I get it. Life's really hard. It's really tough. Totally hear it. I'm going to make you a promise. I'm going to tell you to go back where you came from, and I'm going to tell you, I get it. It's hard. It's going to be hard, and it's going to get harder. But I have a promise for you. I promise that your son that you're going to give birth to, by the way, she probably didn't know it was a son. She was probably hoping it was a son, but she didn't know if it was going to be a son until this messenger told him. I guess that was the first reveal party. Sorry. Told him it was a son. Told him that he would name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard of your misery. The reason why Ishmael is because Ishmael means God hears. And then the angel says, oh, by the way, he's going to be a wild donkey of a man. Uh, everyone is going to be um, against him. And he's going to live in hostility toward everyone else. Now, you might think, well, thanks. That's not a great promise. <sighs> wow, that's a lot happening. But the reality is she is coming from a position of living a life of servanthood. She's living her life at everyone else's behest. And this promise to her means that her son won't live that way. Her son will be important enough that he will have opposition. And not only will he have opposition, but as a wild donkey of a man, his hand will be against everyone, meaning he will actually be able to fight back. That's a big promise for someone who has lived her entire life in positions where she can't fight back. It sounds weird to us because we're like, why would you want a kid that's going to be like rough? But for her, this is a beautiful promise. And she responds by saying, I'm going to worship you, God. The God who sees me. I have now seen. So you see, there's two parts to this, right? God sees her. He sees her for who she is. The messenger of God comes to her and says her name. Hagar. The messenger of God knows exactly who she is. God knows exactly who she is. He knows where she's coming from. He knows what her life is like. And God talks to her makes her a promise, tells her what her son will be, 
It also is a message, this promise, to Abram that the son that Hagar is carrying is not the son of the original promise that God made to Abram. But he's still included in God's promises, even though he doesn't fit with what God wants. Even when sometimes we do things that don't fit with God's will, his grace still works in those circumstances. That's how we can say God works all things according to his purpose. He works those things to good. Because even when we screw it up, God figures out a way to redeem it. Hagar recognized something about God that we should be able to see too. And that is, this God, this God of Abram, this God knows her. He sees her misery. He sees her desperation. He sees and he does not walk away. He doesn't ignore. He offers grace. Even in the midst of a pretty big mess. Sometimes I think we are unsure of whether or not God can see us. We're not sure that when we're sitting on the edge of our bed trying to decide if we're going to have enough power, enough energy to get up and do the things that we're expected to do that day. We can wonder if God sees that, if God sees us in that moment. We can be sitting in all kinds of messes, messes that we create, messes that we don't create. You can rest assured God sees you in that moment. But not only that, we can see God in those moments. We can also participate in this. You know, we couldn't really prepare a message this week without thinking about the things that happened in our world this week. Thinking about the events in Florida and what that looked like and what that meant. And wondering, how can we see God in that moment? 
In fact, there was a, a meme or a, a picture with words going around with this week. I didn't really like it. In fact, I completely disagree with it. I understand the thought behind it, and if you shared it or saw it and agreed with it, I can understand why you might. But it's completely wrong. And it says, God, why didn't you do something? Why, why weren't you there in this moment? And then there's a line break and it says, God answers. Well, I haven't been welcome in schools in America in a really long time. Here's the thing. <laughs> I don't serve a God who's limited by anybody's law. I don't serve a God who wasn't in that school in Parkland, Florida, this week. I don't serve a God who wasn't present with every single child in that school this week. God was there. Maybe not everyone saw him. It's okay. But God was there. God is there Every time there are challenges and difficult moments, in the midst of violence in the city of Chicago, in the midst of violence, wherever it is, God is there. God is comforting those who need comfort. He's judging those who need judgment. God is in that moment. Make no mistake. My God was in that school. And my God is with those parents. And the other students. And the doctors. And the nurses. And the teachers. Mr. Rogers used to talk about how he handled talking to children in particular about really awful things that happen in the world. Maybe it was a fire or a flood or a natural disaster or something. And he would say that when he was a little boy and he would get concerned about those things, his mom would always say to him, look for the helpers. Because there's always helpers. And those are the people that you can understand and appreciate in those moments. Helpers are the hands and feet of Jesus in those places. That's where my Jesus was. He was there. Maybe we don't like to think about what it is when our politicians don't acknowledge him or when we think our politicians could do a better job in one space or another, but the God who was in the wilderness to meet a grieving and hurt and heartbroken Hagar. That God is present in any of the places where people might want to try to keep him out. 
God is present wherever his people are. God is visible in our world, in the people that he has called to him. One of the things the speaker said this week that really resonated with me, and you may hear me say it over and over again on a regular basis, is this. When we think about who God is, and we think about what God looks like, this is what we need to remember. Our God came to us as a Jew in Nazareth who lived briefly, died violently, and rose unexpectedly and inhabits each of us as an invasion in a world that desperately needs to see the living, breathing embodiments of Christ in us. We are the invasion in the world. The women at the tomb on Easter morning, this is how the guy said it. He said, the preacher women at the tomb walked away and they were right. He's loose. And he is loose. He's loose in all of us. Jesus is on the loose. He's on the move. And he wants others to see him in us. He wants us to be him to others. That's why we receive communion every week. Because as we're receiving that meal, as we're celebrating that grace, we are infused again the power that changes how we're perceived in the world. We're given the grace that lets others see Jesus in us.